friends, and welcome back to The Midnight Owl. Tonight we're continuing our Tudor series with episode two. You might hear the fire roaring next to us, as well as our new puppy. And he is attempting to maybe settle down for the night, so there might be some background noise, but we'll take it for what it is as ambiance for the evening. So once again, I'm here with my partner, Ben. Hi. And we're learning about the Tudors. Do you remember what happened in last episode? No. No. It's been a while since we've recorded. Yeah. We've had things happen. We went to the States. Someone got COVID. And then he fell off some skis and had to be in the hospital again. So we were in the States a little longer. Now we're doing episode two of the Tudor series as our puppy Stoker starts to whine. So basically, at the end of last episode, we had been covering the War of the Roses, which saw Henry VI of England fighting against, at first, Richard of York, and then his son, Edward IV, later Edward IV. And they fight, and Edward wins, mm -hmm. and then he gets taken off a couple times of the throne, and then he gets put back on the throne. Are you starting to somewhat remember? No. No. Okay. So, Edward versus Henry. They go back and forth. Edward's main dude is Warwick, the kingmaker, and the kingmaker betrays him, along with Edward's brother, Duke of Clarence, and they fight against him. Henry is put back on the throne for a bit, and then Edward eventually defeats them all. He marries Elizabeth Woodville. They have oodles and oodles of children. And then he dies. And on the way to London, his two sons, want the oldest obviously going to be throned, are kidnapped by their uncle Richard and thrown in the tower. And Richard becomes Richard III of England. That's where we had left off. Richard III is Richard that's buried in Leicester. Yes, the one that they found in the car park. Car park Richard. Yep. Car park Richard. That okay. One. Okay. So he's on the throne right now. So he's usurped car park it. Richard. Car park Richard. He's he's put his nephews in the tower, and he's taken the throne. That's where we are right now. Not yet in a car park. Not yet in a car park. So, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Richard. Car park Richard. He was born on the second of October in 1452 at Fotheringay Castle in Northamptonshire, just down the, the road. Castle. Fotheringay. He's the 11th of 12 children. Mm -hmm. He marries He's Anne. almost the youngest. He's almost the youngest. Um, You've got to think about birth order, haven't you? I sure do. Yeah. But I mean, I don't really know what it does to your psyche to be almost the youngest, as mm. I'm just the youngest. So. Weirdo. Yeah. Well, it's really the only children that are weird. Mm. So he marries Anne Neville, who's the daughter of the kingmaker. So the guy that originally put his brother Edward on the throne and then betrayed his brother and put Henry on the throne and then got killed. So Richard's. Richard, Carpot Richard's father-in-law is the kingmaker. Is the kingmaker. You got it. She had originally been married to Edward of Westminster, the only son of the former king of Henry VII. Henry yeah. VI, rather. So she had been in line, essentially, to be queen. And then now she's married to, to Richard. So she's queen? No. Because her husband was the son of Henry VI, and then they all got killed because Edward came to the throne. So why is she not queen for being Richard's queen? Because Richard, when they got married, they're not quite king and queen yet. Oh, I thought you said he's King Richard III. He is, but he's not yet. Oh. Listen. Sorry, I thought he was king. <laughs> um, so, obviously her father had died when he betrayed Edward IV at the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471. So, unlike his brother, George, uh, unlike his brother George, Richard had never rebelled against Edward. He'd always stayed loyal to his brother, had stuck by his side, and he was really well rewarded for this. He was granted the Duchy of Gloucester in... The Duchy of what? Gloucester. Gloucester. In 1461 in many estates in Northern England and Richmond, in Yorkshire and Pembroke and Wales. He was made the Constable of Gloucester and Corfe Castles for his birthday in 1462. He was the Governor of the North, the Constable of England, Baron of Hastings, Chief Justice of North Wales, Chief Steward and Chamberlain of Wales, Great Chamberlain and Lord High Admiral of England. And really the list goes on and on. Yeah. He's like... Lame. Lame? Is it all those titles? He's everything for everyone. Yeah. You get too many titles, don't you, then it means don't mean anything. Really? You think? Is that how you'd feel? Yeah. If you were the Chief Steward Chamberlain of Wales, Great Chamberlain, Lord High Admiral of England, and Baron Hastings? It's like assistant to the manager. So you're not mean you're the assistant manager. That's true. Okay. Fair. But he, I mean, he's getting a lot of money from all this, and palaces, and land, and doesn't bother you. Mm. You Wales. Don't, you don't... Well, it's, it's Pembroke. It's, like, really nice. I said Wales. Yeah, Pembroke and Wales. Oh. Yeah, it's, like, really, really nice. 
Have you ever been? Yeah, it's gorgeous. Uh, anyways, <laughs> so it's paying to be the king's brother, and particularly the only brother who stuck by a side and didn't raise a rebellion in an army. This is Richard. Yes. So Richard. when their brother rebels with the kingmaker and Edward goes into exile, Richard and Anthony Woodville, the brother of the queen, they escape just barely. Mm. And they're all so broke that Edward had to pay their passage to Bruges with his fur coat. So they all escape together and the queen goes into hiding and basically seeks sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. And in 1475, Edward invades France. Seek sanctuary in Westminster Abbey? Yes. It's not very hidey, is it? Well, no, you don't. I mean, I guess it's not really hiding. It's it's seeking sanctuary. They had to hide until they got there. Then she went to Westminster Abbey as the queen and, and had some sanctuary. In 1475, Edward invi- invades France and Richard's contingent was the largest. He was excluded from talks with the queen, the, uh, the king of France, which eventually led to this peace treaty. But really, he should have been involved because he was he had all these titles and lands. Right, Richard was fighting on Edward's side. Yes. Well, because at this point, this is 1475. So Edward's back on the throne. And now, as king, he's invading France and going to war with France. So Richard's out of hiding. Yes. I'm sorry, I skipped a few years there. <laughs> I was relying on you to remember last episode. That was silly. Um, anyway, so he's a little bit upset with his brother for excluding him from these talks with the French king and for not listening to him. And he really didn't like his brother's policy of profiting personally from war. Because basically, this war was funded with public funds, and yet all the stuff that came from war all the benefits of war were going directly to his brother and richard thought that was kind of skeezy and he didn't like that good on richard yeah he was also extremely popular in the north which was generally an area where kings and the royal family maybe weren't so popular because the royal family didn't really do a lot in the north or for the north and the north was taking this battering from the scots because the scots would come over and do border raids and they kind of felt like they were forgotten by the royal family and the kings of England. And Richard really made an effort to help the North and to put a little bit more wealth and justice into the North. So he was really popular there. So he's doing good under his brother, but there might be just like a little bit of resentment there at with the exclusions, like I said. And then also his brother doesn't allow him total control over the North and his other holdings. He keeps putting other people in charge in the North to kind of check the power of his brother. So he feels like he's being... Checked. Checked. Yeah. So when Edward IV dies in April of 1483, this is where we left off last time, his 12-year-old son, Edward V, succeeds him. And on his way to London, he's captured by Richard, who is the Lord Protector. Wait, so Richard's captured his nephew? Yes. Yes. So Richard had agreed to meet Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth Woodville, at Northampton on the 29th of April. The Queen had asked her brother, Anthony, the one who had escaped with Richard originally, to escort her son to London so that he could be crowned. Hmm. They have an army of about 2,000 men, and Richard has about 600 men. 2,000 is a lot. It's a lot. Back then. Yep. It's a big army. It is. So Richard has the Queen's brother, Anthony, arrested. This is the guy he escaped with to Bruges. They should be somewhat close, but he has him arrested and taken to Pontefract Castle in the north and has him beheaded on the 25th of June for charges of high treason. This Wait, this is because Edwards died? Yes. So of Richard what? is... Um, he died, essentially, of internal bleeding, and contemporaries think that that was brought on by overconsumption. It was fat. Yeah, real fat. Which was kind of a shame, because he had been described as, like, one of the most handsome, if not the most handsome man in Europe at, when that he was young. pretty common for royals, though. Yeah, it does. The most handsome man. Well, the charmingest man. The... It's true. I mean, his great, his grandson would later be described as the most handsome prince of all of Christendom, so. Henry. Yes. So I guess that's maybe common that they describe themselves like that um anyway so richard is written by the handsome the handsome indeed yeah always um richard then takes the new king and informs him that there's been this plot to overthrow him from the throne and that he's going to take him into his custody and keep him safe until the traitors are dealt with yeah Uh, and then he takes edward to london and they enter london on may the 4th now this is where people might start to pick up on things being a little bit off because normally a new king enters london and there's some pomp and circumstance, and it's kind of celebratory that there's this new king, and there's this new regime, and usually it's somewhat hopeful. But on this occasion, it's clearly a military entrance. And they come into to London with 2,000 men displaying weapons of war. So it's clear, like, Richard is in charge, and he's taking power, and all under the guise of protecting his nephew from this plot to overthrow him. Maybe there was a plot. 
maybe there was. Maybe there was. Um, I don't think there was. <laughs> so he takes Edward to the bishop's apartment and then to the royal apartments of the Tower of London, where kings usually await their coronation. So at this point, I'm guessing Edward thinks he's awaiting his coronation. His uncle's just protecting him. You know, it's all fine. Slowly, Richard moves everyone out of the tower because there's people that live in the tower and there's like kind of a population in the tower and he moves everyone out and he totally isolates this young king. Meanwhile, the queen dowager, Elizabeth Woodville. The queen what? Dowager, which essentially means she was the queen. Now her husband's dead and she's the past queen. So queen dowager. So she hears that her brother Anthony has been arrested and she goes to seek sanctuary in Westminster Abbey with her eldest son from her first marriage, Thomas Gray. Her five daughters and her youngest son are all seeking sanctuary. And Richard then starts saying that the queen and her family are planning on murdering him. He accuses her son of being in on it and drags him from council chambers and executes him then and there in the courtyard. So the queen gives her youngest son to the Archbishop of Canterbury so that he can go to his brother's coronation, which is planned for the 22nd of June. And it's basically at this point that Richard starts to destroy his brother's legacy posthumously. And he begins spreading rumors that Elizabeth and Edward's marriage was never valid, as Edward had been married previously to Eleanor Butler, which would then make all of the children from that marriage illegitimate, including the now king. Make him a bastard. Yes. And you can't be on the throne if you're a bastard. Yeah, no one wants to be under a bastard. Yeah. You look nice. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay. So on the 22nd of June, the day which would have been the crowning of the new king, a sermon is preached in front of old St. Paul's Cathedral, which declares Edward's children as being illegitimate. And a petition is then drawn up by nobles and commons of London asking Richard to take the throne. He then accepts and he's crowned at Westminster Abbey on the 6th of July. Where is the Queen's still at Westminster Abbey? So they, yeah, she's still, but she's she's in sanctuary. So you can't touch anyone if they're in sanctuary. But eventually they come to this kind of false agreement. We'll cover it later where they like pretend to be friends, essentially. Right. Um, so he's crowned. And the princes in the tower, his two nephews, were never seen again after 1483. So the, the queen, what's her name from earlier, is now Elizabeth queen? Elizabeth Woodville. The, yes, his wife, the original, yes, is now queen. Got it. Yep. Got it. Yep. I'm back up to speed now. You're there. Okay. Elizabeth it's, Woodville. Is not queen now. She's queen dowager. Richard's what? wife, the one you asked at the beginning. Is, who's called what? Oh, what did I say her name is? I said her name is Anne Neville. Anne Neville is now queen. Queen Anne. Is she on this... Um... This uh, piece of paper you've got me here with them, they're not on this, are they? No, they're not. This this is different. This We'll get there. We'll get okay. there. We'll get there. Sorry. Okay, so he comes to the throne. It's widely believed he kills his nephews. Carpart Richard. Carpart Richard. Richard. Gets on the throne. Yes. It's Living widely believed he kills his nephews, although some people think Margaret Beaufort, who we'll get to later, and think she did it. Some think Henry VII did it when he came to the throne. But Carpart generally... Richard was good for the books, right? Yes, good if for I the books. I know anything about Carpart Richard. He was good, good for, for the, the books. books. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. So Richard is on the throne. What does he do with his newfound power? Well, like I said, he's popular in the North. So he establishes the Council of the North. What do they do? Which is a, it's a huge institution, essentially, which helps the North of England to keep peace and punish lawbreakers. It resolves land disputes. And that didn't change until 1641. So it was it was there for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, he also establishes a court of requests, which is essentially for people who couldn't afford lawyers they could come to this court and have their grievances Tell you, lawyers greedy make too much money i'm gonna try not to take that personally you're not a lawyer not anymore but you know yeah. i don't know we were watching that thing today where they said they make two grand an hour and i the only thought i had was he was a partner in a law firm i could use big, two grand an hour a partner in a big law firm yeah but i could use two grand Old an hour white guy. do you know what we could do with two grand an hour if um, all i had to do was work to pay our rent for months for like an hour yeah but if you worked one hour a week, you wouldn't earn two grand. No. But I mean, you know, eventually you'd get there and then I could just, like, buy us a really nice house. But I mean, and... if it was a partner. Yeah. He couldn't just then work one hour a week and still get two grand. Well, you'd be amazed yeah. what I see partners do. Anyways, okay, all right, okay. Um, he improves bail to protect suspected felons from being imprisoned before their trial and protects their property from being seized while they await trial. What did he do with the books? Well, he basically gets rid of all restrictions on the printing and sales of books. So like, that books like, can be more widely disseminated and read and more people can be informed. Because before they were restricted. Yes. Bastards. Well, because one way to control populace is to control the knowledge of the populace. So. That was very deep. Well, it's very true. Just look at America. Anyways, so he 
also basically founds part of Cambridge, and he really does give a lot to to justice and education. And he kicks out the French, doesn't he? Does he? So he kicks out the French words. Oh, 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 oh. Well, okay. The French words are a little bit different. So he takes, he orders the translation of written laws and statutes from French into English so that common people could read and understand them. Because the law was written in French. Because the law was written in French, Since and it when? was the most common language. It was like the official language of England from 1066 when William the Conqueror came Fucking because he William. was Norman, what is mm. now modern day France. Mm. So French becomes the accepted language. And that sticks around for about well, the common folks speaking English or French? English. The French is reserved for the aristocracy and the monarchy. Because the French are basically ruling. Exactly. From 1066 until... For about 300 years. However, it sticks around, and in the 15th century, so what we're talking about now, it becomes the main spoken language. And Latin and French are used for legal purposes and official purposes. The spoken language. Is... Is in the common man is speaking French. N- Okay, so English becomes what the common man is speaking, but French is what the aristocracy is speaking, and it's being written in the laws. Right. Right. Okay. So he basically makes it so the laws are written in English so that people can actually understand the law that they're being subject to. Yeah. Right. Uh, he I makes... I like his policies. Me I'll too. i for this guy. Me too. That's why there's now a Richard III Society, because people thought he got a bad rap. And there's a bunch of people here in England that made a Richard III Society, and their goal is to basically change his... Why don't you join? His rap. Well, he's not really my guy, but... Why not? You know. If they... I My guys... No one wants to be in the Henry VIII Society, yeah, you know? He did, Richard III did much better He things. did. I should read more about him. Why do you think Henry VIII's so good? Just because someone said it was good looking? No. He got rid of the church? No. They had a gummy leg. Yeah. You know how I love mm, some gummy legs. Leg. Mm. Um, mm, Richard bacon. <laughs> bacon. He requires that all land sales be published, and he made it illegal to conceal from a buyer of a land that part of that property had been disposed of to somebody else. So basically, he just made it so that if you buy a chunk of land, you know exactly what you're getting. You know who else has claims to it. You know there's going to be any conflict with it. Um, he regulated cloth sales and made trade protection measures. He prohibited fraudulent collection for clergy Dues. Regulated cloth sales? Yeah. What do you mean? Regulated cloth sales, like the selling of cloth. Because there's a whole historical world around cloth, particularly in the aristocracy, and who could wear certain types of cloth, and who could sell certain types of cloth, and who could dye cloth, and what colors they had to be dyed, and who could wear those colors. So there's a whole world behind that. Ugh. Um, yep. Yeah, he prohibited fraudulent collection of clergy dues. He funded Cambridge University's King's College and Queen's College. He then makes this agreement with Elizabeth Woodville that if she accepts him as king, she could come out of exile and he would provide for her and her daughters. He lost his son in 1484 and his wife in 1485. He thinks about marrying his niece, Elizabeth of York, and that way she couldn't marry Henry Tudor. But this is vetoed because, like I said, the only reason he's on the throne is that he illegitimized all of those children. So if he marries her, it's basically saying she's legitimate because he wouldn't marry some illegitimate bastard. So if he marries this this daughter of his brother, mm. it's saying she's legitimate. And I basically illegally said that she was illegitimate so that I could take the throne. And that's like waving the flag that says I'm a usurper. So couldn't do that. That's vetoed. All in all, he reigned from the 26th of June to 1483, in 1483 to August of 1485, so just two years. And, you know, usurpation generally doesn't go very well, especially when you kill your brother's kids and betray him. So, what we'll get to now, what I want to touch on, because you keep saying that he's Car Park Richard, is finding his body. So we'll cover how he dies. He dies at the Battle of Bosworth. But on August 24th of 2012, the University of Leicester and Leicester City Council, in association with Richard III's society, begin a search for the remains of the king. And this is called Looking for Richard Project. Mm-hmm. They set out to... Lo- Could you stop yawning? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> they set out to locate the former Greyfriars Church, which was demolished by Henry VIII. They compare fixed points between maps and historical sequence. They search located the church where Richard's body would have been quickly buried after the, bo- after the battle. A human skeleton was found beneath what would have been the church's choir. They found it in the very first location that they looked in. They lay lay almost directly under a roughly painted R in the tarmac. And this had only been painted in 2000 to signify a restricted parking area. So everyone that found this thought this was pretty spooky, that it was like right under an R. It's kind of cool. Not spooked. 
I'm kind of spooked. I think it's cool. On the 12th of September, they announced that it might be Richard. It is the body of an adult male. It was buried beneath the choir of the church. There was scoliosis of the spine, which would mean that one shoulder was higher than the other, which is basically what contemporaries report about Richard is that he was, he had a crooked spine. And then that later becomes like he was a hunchback and all these other things. But Mm. really, it was just that one shoulder was slightly higher than the other. They find an arrowhead embedded in the spine, paramortem injuries to the skull, a bladed weapon mark to the skull, a hole where a halberd had cut away and entered the brain, and also cut off the back half of the skull so that his brain would have been exposed on the backside. Nice. (laughs) There was a blade hole that shows that a blade was buried into his head uh, 4.1 inches deep, and there was 10 to 11 wounds in total. Wow, so he really got hacked up. Yes. So there's four minor injuries on the top of the of the skull, a dagger blow below the cheekbone, one cut on the lower jaw, two fatal injuries on the base of the skull. He has cuts on the ribs and a final wound on the pelvis, which scientists think was probably a postmortem wound and most likely one of humiliation and something maybe to do with the genitals. Um, it's accepted that his naked body was tied to the back of a horse with his arms slung on one side and the legs on the other. And this became a rather tempting target for soldiers of the other side and onlookers as they took the body away. And they think that the blow on the pelvis was someone stabbing his, his buttocks as they went past with the body on the horse. Nice. Yes. So they now turn to genealogical research and through Richard's eldest sister, Anne of York, they find a British born woman who had moved to Canada after World War II. Her name is Joy Isbin. Nine. Her name is Joy. Her name is Joy Isbin, mm-hmm. and she's the 16th generation great niece of Richard III, in the maternal line. So, so she's the rightful queen. She's the queen. Um, her mitochondrial DNA was tested, and it belonged to the haplogroup J, which means she was related to Richard III. She died in 2008, but her son Michael gave a mouth swab to the team and found it was the same line, and this was used to identify the body. On the 4th of February, 2013, the University of Leicester confirmed beyond a reasonable doubt that the skeleton they found in the car park belonged to Richard III. They also determined his cause of death was having part of his skull sliced off. The team also, and this blew my mind. This is when I was typing this up and I was like, oh my God, the other day, this is what this was. The team finds ringworm eggs in the area of the king's pelvis, like old ringworm eggs. And they aren't found anywhere else in the grave site. So this suggests that at the time of his death, he was suffering from ringworm. How crazy is that? Mm. I think that's crazy. Why? Because it's like, that just doesn't seem like something that would stick around. And hundreds of years later, they find ringworms. And you, you know that this person who's become this kind of, you know, abstract idea or put down in literature. And, you know, I love things about history that make the people more real. Like things. And about Tommy. Yeah, but I mean, that's something we can all relate to because I think we feel so distant. Well, but you have a bad tummy. Mm. But I mean, we all feel so distant from people in the past. But like having a really upset stomach and being really sick is something we can relate to. And like, that's just cool that they found That's probably why he died then. You're not going to fight well if you've got a bad tummy and a gummy shoulder. We get to how he died in the battle. But um, his paternal DNA does not... I've made my own conclusions. Okay, all right. (laughs) So the team sequences his genome, and he becomes the first ancient person of known historical identity to have their genome sequenced. And what they find... This also is so cool. I'm so excited. What they find is that his paternal DNA does not match his historical bloodline, which suggests... What? That there was maybe some illegitimate, well, definitely some illegitimacy. So somewhere in the line of kings, a mama fooled around. And Richard and, you know, potentially other kings were illegitimate. Because he wasn't related to who? So his motto was loyalty milai, which means loyalty binds me. And there might be some irony there since he took out his brother. Meanwhile. Yeah. Born at Pembroke Castle on the 28th of January, 1457, to Lady Margaret Beaufort, is a boy. Henry VII. Henry VII. Yeah. He is born to Lady Margaret Beaufort and Edmund Tudor, who died three months before his birth of plague in prison because he fought against the Yorkists. So that's when you get your birth thing here, your little family tree here. We're Owen Tudor, tier seven. So, (laughs) okay. So here's what we're going to, okay. Here's how this works out. Yeah. So Henry VII's paternal grandfather is Owen Tudor of the Tudors of Penmenden Isle in Wales. I totally butchered that. But he was essentially a page in the court of Henry V, so a servant in the court of Henry V. After the death of Henry V, his widow, Catherine of Valois, Mm -hmm. falls in love with Owen Tudor, the servant, and they get married. 
all kings of England after, I think, Henry the Sixth. Yeah. Are all related to John of Gaunt. So who is John of Gaunt? John of Gaunt was the one of the sons mm-hmm. of Edward the Third. He's right. not the oldest, so he wasn't the next king. And he has a longtime mistress, Catherine Swinford. So they get married after his first wife, Blanche, dies. They've been together for 25 years, but they get married finally now, legitimately. And their children are all retroactively made legitimate. So they have a bunch of kids who are illegitimate. Then they get married. They're retroactively made legitimate. What, what do you mean retroactively? How do they suddenly become legitimate? A, an act of parliament is what did it, really. Right. And then one of the kings basically makes his half-siblings legitimate later. So they now become legitimate, which gives legitimacy to the Beaufort line, which comes down to Lady Margaret Beaufort, and eventually Henry the Seventh and the rest of the Tudors. So Henry's parents mm-hmm. are cousins. Yes. Well, Disgusting. I have news for you about the current royal family, then. <laughs> no, are they as close of cousins as this? Because these mean, are cousins. Because well, they're... They're half-siblings, which makes them cousins. So mm-hmm. they're only cousins, one layer down from cousins. Mm-hmm. So pretty close cousins. Pretty close cousins, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit incesty, isn't it? <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, so Margaret Beaufort has a claim. However, like, even the Portuguese royal family have a closer so claim, essentially. John of Gaunt is a king? No, John of Gaunt was never king. Is the king's son? Is the king's son, Yes. And his brother, the oldest brother, was who? Was Richard II. So Richard II. So John of Gaunt's oldest brother, Richard II. Yes, becomes king. Becomes king. So John of Gaunt was never king, but his line defines British history. So John of Gaunt has, with Kate Blanchett of Lanchester. Kate Blanchett. Blanche. Has Henry IV. Yes. And she dies. Yep. Marries Catherine Swinford. What? Swinford. Swinford has John Beaufort, Beaufort. Mm-hmm. who then has John Beaufort, yep. who then has Lady Margaret Beaufort. Yep. And is Henry the Fourth has Henry the Fifth. Yep. Who dies. Yep. And his wife then has sex with a servant and gives birth to Edmund Tudor. So he's not really Edmund Tudor's not actually related to John of Gaunt. No. By blood. No. At all. No. Because his mum used to have used yeah. to be in a relationship with John of Gaunt's grandchild. Yeah. That's a pretty weak claim. Yeah, it is. It is. And that kind of haunts the Tudors forever, that they have kind of a weak claim to the throne. So, so Margaret is, Beaufort... So we're now on Henry VII. Yes. We're Got talking it. a little bit about Margaret Beaufort. Sorry. So Margaret Beaufort was originally married when she was like three years old. and Married at three. Married at three. And she chooses later in her life to not acknowledge that first marriage because then she gets married. (laughs) She gets married um, when she is still pretty young to Edmund and then gives birth to Henry VII when she is just 13 years old. Nice. And this birth is so... And she survives. Yeah. But it's so horrendous and horrible and it so destroys her teenage body because it was just so not ready to bear a child that it... It gives her post-traumatic stress disorder for the rest of her life. And one of her missions is to change the way that birth occurs in England. And she kind of changes some regulations around how it that. occurs. Yeah, like how they go about it. And it it's a whole other side of the story. Okay. But she's a how badass woman. How long does she live? A long time. She doesn't die until her grandson's reign. Well, maybe she should, we should have more kids young then. Might be good for your health. Yeah? Well, we're a little late now. No, I meant the human oh. people. Okay, I was like, we've missed the boat. But, yeah. Um, How old are you? Not 13. Oh, there's a lot wrong with that joke. <laughs> but so she has, she's a real badass. Because she takes this line, this Beaufort line, and she is sure of it. Like, she is sure that her family should be on the throne. She knows this. So she goes through a couple husbands. She marries Henry Stafford, her first cousin. After Tudor dies. Yes. And Henry stays with his uncle Jasper in Wales and becomes really fond of Wales and is really proud of the fact that he's Welsh and grew up in Wales. 
And when Edward IV takes the throne, Margaret Beaufort loses her lands and they go to the king's brother, George, Duke of Clarence. She then marries Thomas Stanley and this would allow her to go to court and make inroads for her son. And while she's in court, she forms a really close relationship with Elizabeth Woodville, the queen. Hmm. And Margaret is even asked to be the godmother of one of her ch- of one of her daughters. So at the time, Richard Carpot Richard is still king. Well, now we've gone backwards. Oh, sorry. Yeah, but when Richard the Third becomes king, mm-hmm. she negotiates the return of her son. But meanwhile, the she's returned from where? To he's basically gone to at this point. He's gone into exile in Brittany. So he'd been in Wales, and then he was exiled, and he's because he's a potential contender for the throne. He's gone to Brittany, which is mainland Europe. So that's where he is. Kind of at this point, but not really. But yes. Um, So meanwhile, she's conspiring with the Dowager Queen Elizabeth to put her son on the throne and marry him to the Queen's daughter, Elizabeth of York. So Margaret, assisted by the the Duke of... The Queen's daughter, but not the King's. No, it's Richard's niece. The one that he contemplated marrying, but then was like... that Queen. That one. So Margaret assisted the Duke of Buckingham in a rebellion against Richard III, and this fails. And weirdly, for whatever reason, Richard doesn't have her executed. He just has her imprisoned. Weakling. Yeah, I guess. And Henry's in Brittany, and Richard III is trying to get him extradited back to England because he's a serious threat to the usurper's throne. Henry then escapes to France, and France welcomes him and supplies him with troops and equipment for an invasion of England. So Henry's getting ready because he, like his mother, believes that this Beaufort line gives him a right to the throne and that he could do better than Richard. So he has the support of the French, and the Scots, in fact, a thousand Scots marched with him on England. And the Woodvilles, and the Welsh. Why didn't the Scots like Richard? Because he supported the North. Yep, there you go. Is that right? So, yep. So he sails to Wales, landing Confused, at Mill Bay near Dale in Pembrokeshire on the 7th of August in 1485. Sails to Wales. Sails to Wales. From France. From France. With the Scots. Yes. Wow. Yeah. It's a long round trip. It's a round trip. Uh, He would have been familiar with Wales because he spent 14 years there, and then he spent another 14 years in Brittany and France. Not all of Wales, though. Well, no, but this would have been a comfortable place for him. Yeah. And so then he... Well, the thing is, is that England is not familiar. He hasn't ever been to England. Like, this is... Ever. Ever. Like, he was born there, but that's about the only contact he has with it. So he is coming to invade this land that he's basically never been to. Um, and he's not yeah, but much... but not people invade places that they spent a lot of time in. I guess that's true. But he's not much of a warrior, and he knows this. He's much more interested in commerce and finance, and he knows that this is a weak point. So what he's really no- well known for doing is surrounding himself with people that fill in his weaknesses. And so what he does is he marches with his uncle Jasper and John Devere, the Earl of Oxford. And they're both warriors. So he knows he's got people with him. He enters England at Shrewsbury, and he amasses an army of five to 6,000 people. Richard has his troops in Nottingham and Leicester, and he knows Henry is coming. (laughs) Represent. Um, Henry then spends some days recovering and amassing deserters from Richard's camp. Wait, say that again. So Henry's just recovering. He rests at Shrewsbury, and people from Richard's army start deserting and coming to Henry. So he's getting a bigger and bigger army. People don't like Richard. Why? He's unpopular because he's a usurper. He's good for the books, though. He's good for the books. See, if it had kept the propaganda going, it might have done better. Maybe. But instead, he let the books go. He let the books go. So Henry marches to London, well, begins to march to London, and Richard heads from Nottingham to Leicester to meet Norfolk, his most important ally. To meet who? Norfolk. Norfolk? Yeah. Oh. I said the exact same thing as you. (laughs) No, you say it a bit weird. He spends the night in a pub called the Blue Boar and heads west to intercept Henry's army. Richard places his army on Ambien Hill, which he thought would be a good tactical move. He didn't sleep very Where's well that Ambien night. Hill? So it's basically Yeah. It Yeah. Is Yeah. Basically. In Leicestershire. In Leicestershire. Mm-hmm. Yep. Whereabouts? South of Market Bosworth. Hmm. In Leicestershire. Yeah. In fact you can I can give Leicestershire you about five times I can give you exact coordin- coordinates if you'd like. Longitude and latitude. Uh huh. 5235 28 north and 12437 west. Do you know the units of longitude and latitude? Degrees? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any be. So he thought that would be a good tactical move. He didn't sleep very well that night. And according to this chronicle, in the morning his face was, quote, more livid and ghastly than usual. This is Henry. Richard. Richard. Yep. He's on Ambien Hill. So the Yorkist army, Richard's army, 
has between 7,500 and 12,000 men and was atop a hill lining the ridge. Between what? 7,500 and 12,000 men. It's a really broad estimate. (laughs) A lot of men. It's a lot of men. Um, So he's got a parlance of spearmen stood on the right flank protecting the cannons and 1,200 archers. Richard has 3,000 infantrymen in the center. That's cannons before they had muskets. A long time. Is that a question? Well, if they don't have musketmen, but they have cannons. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder how long they had cannons for before they made them handheld. We can cover that at some point. Hmm. Firearms. Okay. Um, Richard has 3,000 infantrymen in the center, and Northumberland has the left flank with about 4,000 cavalry. It would have probably been a pretty frightening sight, as they have the upper, they have the uphill advantage. They're on this hill. They've got archers, cavalry, infantry, and they have an unobstructed view of the surrounding areas. Mm. Now below them, Henry's army is approaching from the southwest. How many did Henry have at this point? Five to six thousand. A lot less. Yes, and they have to deal with the fact one they have the lower tactical advantage because they're mm. below the hill. They also have a marsh that they can't go into. They have to walk yeah. around this. Is marsh. this the one where they take away? They do. They take off the armor and different well. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Henry's army is approaching from the southwest. That was, that was in France. <laughs> yep. His army are basically deserters and mercenaries. Who? Henry's. And the Scots. And some French. And some Welsh. So deserters and mercenaries. <laughs> oh, boy. There goes all of our Welsh listeners. I was talking about the Scots. Aww. Okay. The core of his army, according to John Mackey, who's a historian, uh, was comprised of 1,800 French mercenaries. That's like the brute force of his army. Supplied by who? Well, they're mercenaries, aren't they? Well, who's paying for them? Probably Henry. With what money? Well, him and his supporters. So he's got to have some kind of funding. So he's probably got some aristocracy. Maybe the French king, because the French supported him. Mm, so. That's what I wondered if it was the French king supporting him. I wonder why it's just not the French army. Yeah, well, I that you know, honestly, the answer to that could probably be that maybe the French didn't want to seem... Because they don't know how this is going to turn out. They don't know if it's going to be Richard or Henry that wins. So maybe the French didn't want to make this like really bold overture of support. Mm. You know? At, the, at this point... It doesn't matter that they speak French because some of the, the, the people still speak French anyway. So it's yeah. not a language barrier. No. Maybe to the Welsh. Yeah, that must be confusing, eh? Yeah. So Henry begins to move towards Ambien Hill. At this point, Richard sends a message to Lord Stanley, who is Henry's stepfather. He's married to Margaret Beaufort. Hmm. And Lord Stanley is a really interesting character because what he's managed to do is hmm. stay basically neutral. That he's been like, I'm not on Richard's side. I'm not on my stepson's side. I'm on no one's side. Hmm. And Richard sends a message to him and says, you need to attack Henry now. And if you don't, I'm going to execute your son because he's taken Stanley's son. Mm -hmm. And Stanley replies, I have other sons. So he's now like, all right, it's Henry. I guess I'm on Henry's side. So Richard orders the execution of Lord Strange, Stanley's son. But the orders aren't followed because his troops basically say to him, well, it'd be more convenient for us to do this after the battle. So we'll just stay this execution until we know you've won. So Lord Stanley... Then declares himself for Henry. Henry hands over the command to Lord, um, to Oxford, because Oxford's the soldier. Oxford's a cool surname. It is, isn't it? And he's the soldier. He knows Henry's military strategy is weak, so he hands it to Oxford. Oxford splits the men into the classic military layout of the vanguard, the center, and the rear guard. And then they're fired upon by cannons while they're trying to walk around this marshy, boggy area that they can't get into. Mm. They're then somewhat attacked, but it proves that Oxford and Henry's men are better in hand-to-hand combat, and they push the front attack out of the way, and those men start retreating. Why are they better in hand-to-hand combat? I thought they were a bunch of vagabonds and mercenaries. It just turns out that they're better. Good, good vagabonds. They're good, good mercenaries. So Richard then signals to Northumberland to begin the, the attack, but Northumberland doesn't move. It's generally accepted that at this point he's like, Richard can get fucked. But there is one historian by the name of Ross who thinks that he was in a bad geographical position that prohibited him from riding into battle. I don't think I necessarily buy that. It's in the all on the same battlefield, mm-hmm. this hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Richard then sees Henry behind the main force and Richard decides, I'm going to end this. I don't want any more people to die. Mm. I'm just going to go kill Henry because he has no battle experience. Mm. I'll just go take care of this. And then no one else has to die. He's going to ride around the army. Right through it. Through the army. Yep. So he takes 800 to 1,000 men and... To, to fight through the middle of an army of 7,000. Yeah. He's like, time. I'm just going to spearhead right through this. Yeah, of course. Yep. And do it. 
So he gets within a sword length of Henry. Does he fuck? He he does. He does. He does. It's like generally pretty well accepted that this happens. He in fact gets so close to Henry that he kills his standard bearer. We're missing some facts here. Do you think so? How does he get through seven thousand people with one thousand people? Because he does. He doesn't. He doesn't. Anyway, let's. Oh my god! Okay. Henry dismounts because Henry sees this attack coming and he knows that he doesn't know how to fight and he won't win in a fight with Richard. So he dismounts and conceals himself in the group to make himself less of a target. Take off his gold stuff. (laughs) And he makes no attempt to engage in combat himself. Then Stanley, his stepfather, rides in to the aid of his stepson and Richard's small contingent. Stanley, who'd just been at his son ordered to be killed. Yeah. Who wasn't at the battle. Yep. Is now like... All right. It's come from somewhere else. I'll come help. Yeah. From somewhere else. I'm going to come help. Yep. So he comes in to help with his stepson. With people or on his own? With people, with a contingent. And Richard's small force is driven into the marsh where the king's horse becomes entrapped. So some time has over. passed. The battle's taken a while then. Sure, yeah. Because... Well, I mean, it probably wasn't too far away. He was probably waiting somewhere to kind of figure out, how's this going to go? Mm. Whose side do I want to be on? So Richard, I'm his horse... He's got to get, let everyone know whose side he's on. Yeah. No, I'm coming and I'm on your side. Make sure your men don't kill me. I think he makes it pretty clear when he comes in to help his son. Right, everyone, everyone has to know. Well, but that, I mean, that could be a larger, that's always been my question, is like in medieval battle and early modern battle, basically any battle until there was like clear nation states and uniforms and stuff. Mm. You're just, most people don't have chain mail or mail and armor because you that's obviously, you have to be really wealthy for that. Mm. So it's just people in like, clothes mm. out there how do you know who do you, how do you know but i think they said it's a lot of it wasn't like um you know in films i think i think this is right you've seen films where it's just like an absolute like yeah. mud bath chaos yeah so i don't think it's like that no probably not but it's a lot more like lines and organized yeah and yeah stuff like that um, so and i suppose also there's gonna be some why well, do you not win any armor then yeah see it's Anyways, we'll look into it. So, like, so who are you with? <laughs> Oi! Oi! <laughs> you! Henry or Richard? Speak! Henry or Richard? Speak fast! <laughs> um, so Richard's force is driven into the marsh, and the king's horse topples over into the marsh and throws Richard. He supposedly at this point says, God forbid that I retreat one step. I will either win the battle as a king or die as one. And he didn't say that. And probably not. But I like to think he did. Too long of a sentence. So Richard probably went, Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Richard's, Fopa. Fopa. Richard's bannerman, Percival Thurwall, lost both of his legs but held Richard's banner high until his dying breath. No, he didn't. Oh my god, you lack <laughs> all. Someone's lost both their legs. Historical not, romance. Not holding this is, you know high. what, I think he is. He's not. He's I think he is. I think, well, he held it high until if he did. He's leaning on it. <laughs> okay, if fine. Maybe, it by coincidence. If you're bleeding to death out <laughs> both legs. It's impossible. He was leaning on it. He was leaning on it. And historians it. Or, were like, no. Or his dead body propped it up. Well, okay, but then historians, because what we do is make it heroic. So Richard is now, he's going to go do this fight. And he was apparently, from all accounts of contemporaries, just in seeing red. Like he was just fighting like crazy, right in the thick of all these enemies trying to get to Henry. Trying to end this. Yeah, of course it was. And he came within a sword length of Henry. He was then surrounded by Stanley's men and killed. A Welshman struck a blow with a halberd while Richard's horse was stuck in the marsh. The blow was so violent that his helmet was driven into his skull. So that's when all those wounds that they found on the skeleton were inflicted. After the battle, Richard's circlet, or what, his crown, basically, his battle crown, is said to have been brought to Henry, who was then proclaimed king on a hill near the village of Stoke Golding. Some claim that the circlet was found in a hawthorn bush, and there might be some truth to that because Henry's um, coat of arms has a hawthorn bush on it. But then other people are like, well, the Lancastrians had a hawthorn bush on theirs, so maybe he was just trying to like incorporate a previous to make it the union. Wait, they found the crown in a bush? Yes. Well. Not on the king's head that they just caved in? No, because there's some evidence that his... Um, helmet came off and that's what allowed the back of his skull to be sliced. Right. Yes. So uh, one of Henry's historians say that only 100 of his men died while a thousand of Richard's did. But that's basically pretty much proven wrong. Uh, Henry denied burial for Richard and had his his corpse stripped and strapped to a horse 
like I said earlier, and, and ridden through the mm. town. It was then taken to Leicester so that people could see, like, he's Why dead. Leicester? I think it was the closest. It was like, that was the major city that was closest to this battle. Because men were in Nottingham and Leicester as well, right? Yeah. Which is funny if you're coming from Wales, because it's not that close. No. No, it's not. Close to London, I suppose. But that's, they were heading to London, and that's where they ended up. That's where they kind of... Anyways, so Henry has Parliament reverse the law that made Edward's children illegitimate, thereby making his future wife, Elizabeth of York, legitimate again. And this is important because Henry's claim to the throne is tenuous, right? So it can only help to have this daughter of a king Mm. be his wife. And Mm. therefore, all of his children and the Tudor claim to the throne will have at least one... Double. Triple. Yes. Triple... Triple gone. Yes. And Henry's claim, like you know, was somewhat tenuous because it comes from the maternal line and there was some previous illegitimacy that was then retroactively made to legitimacy. So he has to do every... I mean, literally, the Portuguese and Castilian royal families have better claim to the English throne than Henry did. So he's trying to really make it clear. I am inbred. (laughs) But he's no fool. So what he does is that he says, yeah, I'm going to marry Elizabeth of York, but I'm going to wait until after I'm coronated alone. Because I need it to be seen that I have become king of England in my own right, through my own prowess in battle and my own bloodline, and then waited to marry Elizabeth for like three months, and then married her to like bolster his claim. But if he had been coronated her at that same time, it might have been seen as I'm only king because she's here. Yeah. Yeah. So. Makes sense. He does need that royal blood though and their marriage begins the tudor dynasty they're married on january 18th of 1486 and henry in kind of a, and he's a little bit known to be this cold brutal dude what he does is he backdates his reign by a day so thereby anyone who fought against him at the battle of bosworth for richard is a traitor because they fought against the king because he backdated his his date oh by, yeah, yeah. he should have been king yeah so he then spends the first two years of his reign purging all of those who stood for Richard. And almost immediately his throne comes under attack. Lord Lovell, who is Richard III's chamberlain, starts Lovell, arising. Lovell. And then Lambert Simnel. Richard III's what? Richard III's chamberlain. Essentially a high-ranking helper. Got it. Um, starts arising in 1487, but that comes to nothing. Then Lambert Simnel, who claims to be... This is kind of confusing, but essentially claims to be the nephew of Edward IV, starts a revolt with 2,000 German mercenaries and Irish chieftains. Classic. And they fight at the Battle of Stoke, where they're defeated. Henry then does something really unique and, and, and brutal. Instead of executing Simnel, he makes Simnel a servant in the kitchen. Because basically what he's saying is, you are no threat to me. You're nothing. You're not legitimate. You have no right to the throne. You have no claim. You're just a nobody. So to execute you would be to give you too much legitimacy and to give you too much respect. So instead, I'm going to make you a servant to cook my food. Talk. Yeah. And then in 1491, Perkin Warbeck, potentially the biggest threat to his throne, who was essentially no one. Hmm? Were you? This is in 1491. So Perkin Warbeck is this nobody, really, that's coached to impersonate Richard, the youngest son of Edward IV, one of the princes in the tower. And he's coached to impersonate him. So this person, if this charade had been believed, would have been the next in line, essentially, for the throne. So Perkin, under the guise of Richard, is supported by Maximilian I of Austria, James IV of Scotland, and high-ranking people in both Ireland and England. And he invades England three times. He was captured in Hampshire in 1497. So this went on for six years that he was fighting against Henry. He was hanged after trying to escape from the Tower of London. Although there are some doubts as to whether or not he actually tried to escape or if it was just like, yeah, he's escaping. Get him. Now I can hang him so that we can get rid of him. Hmm. Henry soon begins a war with France, but realizes he hasn't recovered financially from the overthrow and backs out. Did we have a rule in France? Uh, depends on which historian you ask. Like, you didn't, like, there was never a king that ruled all of France. Some of France. Some of France. Calais. So, Henry then has a peace treaty with Scotland in 1499, and he marries his daughter Margaret to James IV, and their descendant would later unite Scotland and England, James I. So Henry turns his attention to finance. He sees money as a way to promote efficiency in his administration and to prevent wars. He tries to encourage exports and protect home industries. He increases royal fiscal rights, legal fees, fines, and feudal dues. He pays this into the royal household, which is supervised by the king himself. So what this is essentially like is if 
Boris Johnson took all of England's money and moved it into his bedroom and was like, I'm going to watch it personally. So that's what Henry... But it's still England's money. Still England's money. And... But he's not, like, siphoning it. No, no, no. He's just building the wealth of the country. And he basically pays off all of his debts and leaves a rather nice... His debts or the country's debts? The country's debts that he had from fighting this war. Uh, he spends up, sets up special councils in Wales and the North. And what he really does, which is another strategic brilliance, is that he rewards all of these nobles around him that helped him fight and win at Bosworth and become king. But what he does is he gives them these lands and these titles that then incur such debts to him because they're costly to run or whatever, that then they can't turn against him because he basically owns them. And so he rewards them, but in such a way that they then become indebted to him, both emotionally and financially. Wait, he gives what? So like the people that helped him win, Mm -hmm. he then hands them over like all these lands and titles and, and castles and stuff. And then it's so costly to run them that they have to like borrow money from the king Mm. and then they're in debt to him. But if they kill him, well, they don't owe him squat. Yeah, I guess. But, um, dead men don't come looking for money. (laughs) It's dark. Meanwhile, his wife didn't have, have much influence because Margaret Beaufort, the king's mother, was still kicking and she was a force to be reckoned with. So she basically was rearing the royal children. She was making political decisions and making. You know, she was this powerhouse. Mother Mother in laws. -laws. You love your mother in law. She's all right, yeah. (laughs) You like yours too? I do too. Um, But by all accounts, his wife Elizabeth was a very generous woman. She was gentle and kind. And they have seven children, so it seems they got along quite well. Henry VIII had six siblings. Yes. Arthur, the Prince of Wales, the firstborn. Mm. Margaret, Queen of Scotland. Henry, Elizabeth. Mary, who becomes Queen of France. He didn't name his first son Henry. Name him Arthur. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. Edmund and Catherine. So Arthur was born premature, but it was viewed as a li- he was viewed as this living symbol of the union between the House of Tudor and the House of York, and the throne and the stability of the Tudor line hung on this infant. He the- died. Yeah, but later, um, he was really the end of the War of the Roses. He was really close to the sister Margaret and his brother Henry because they shared a nursery. He had the best education. He memorized Homer, Virgil, Ovid, Terence, and he knew the works of Caesar, Livy, and Tacitus. No, he didn't. I think he might have, though. You really underestimate how much time these kids spent learning. I mean, royal education for royal children was, like, all day, every day. Like, it was serious. But this also, maybe it was propaganda. Um, He was a great archer and a wonderful dancer. He was unusually tall, with reddish hair, small eyes, and a high bridge nose. all day in school, but also as a kick-ass archer and a dancer. Oh my god, the dancing and the archery was part of the schooling. Right. Okay, you question far too many things. The next episode, we'll do about engineering, and I'll just call you bullshit on everything about engineering. You wanted me to be here and question things. That's what you said. I did. That's true. Um... So his father planned to marry him to the daughter of Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon, Catherine of Aragon. Spanish. Yes. To forge an Anglo-Spanish alliance against France. But the Catherine of Aragon marries Henry. Ooh. Oh, I remember this. Oh, okay. So Catherine of Aragon and Arthur marry in 1501 in St. Paul's Cathedral, and they both wore white satin. What followed was a bedding ceremony. The bed was turned down by Margaret Beaufort and sprinkled with holy water, and Catherine was led away from her wedding by her ladies-in-waiting. She was undressed, veiled, and reverently laid in bed, while Arthur was shown into the bedchamber by his grooms, while music played, and the Bishop of Lincoln then blessed the bed and prayed for the fruit of marriage, and then the couple were left alone. And with the closing... I thought the bedding ceremony, they all sit there and watch. Well, it depends on what culture, but not here. So with the closing of the doors, the whole course of history has changed. Because they were left unsupervised and no one could figure out what actually happened behind those doors. One of them died. No. Oh. The next morning, Arthur brags that, gentlemen, last night I was in the midst of Spain. Suggesting that he's consummated his marriage and penetrated his wife. But obviously that will become an issue later when she is married to his brother. So the couple head to Ludlow Castle and Arthur seems to be getting a little bit sick. Arthur enjoys governing Wales, but then both he and Catherine become really, really sick with an unknown illness. It, it seems to have been something called the sweating sickness, which, interestingly enough, it was this deadly illness that killed thousands of people, but it totally disappeared sometime in the early modern era. And modern science has never seen it again, doesn't know what it is, doesn't know what kind of bug it was, but knows that it existed and it killed lots of people. And there's nothing equivalent to it now. 
So it's not like the flu or something that, you know, has been around. Uh, so Catherine recovers, but Arthur does not. And he dies on the 2nd of April, 1502. Age 12. I think he was 17. But I'm oh. not positive. So Arthur is now dead. And when Henry the Seventh hears 17. this, yeah, he bursts into tears. Henry the what hears this? Seventh. Bursts into tears. Yeah. Elizabeth, his wife, reminds him that they have yet another son and that the throne is not lost. When she leaves his bedchamber, having fulfilled her duties as wife and queen, she, a mother now, collapses into tears. Elizabeth dies in childbirth in 1502 after giving birth to a daughter, Catherine, whom died a few days later, and the king was devastated. He locked himself in a room and wouldn't see anyone other than his mother, Margaret Beaufort. This was rather alarming because he was noted to be a rather cold king. Within two years, he'd lost his heir, his wife, and his newborn. He briefly considers marrying his daughter-in-law, Catherine of Aragon, in order to keep her very, very large dowry. But maybe realizing that he's quite old now, he doesn't want to do that. Henry, his younger son, was given very few responsibilities and was essentially raised to go to the church because he was never meant to be king. king. He was the, the spare heir. But Henry is suggested as a husband for Catherine in order to keep the dowry and to keep the Anglo-Spanish alliance going. So they receive a papal dispensation for affinity, which essentially is like them being related. The fact that she was his sister-in-law. Mm. But she swears the marriage with Arthur was never consummated. She says they never had sex. They never, ever went to bed with each other. Probably not true. Because they were married for 20 weeks and he did come out and say he was in the midst of Spain. But she swears up and down that they never had sex. So the marriage dealing was dragged out when Isabella died and succession issues in Castile occurred. And basically Ferdinand and Henry VII stopped liking each other. And there was this bickering over dowry and and whatnot. And Catherine was left. Did he get the dowry or not? He got part of it. Yeah. But Catherine was left in this really dangerous limbo because her father refused to pay the entirety of her dowry. And then Henry VII was like, why are you here? And I don't really, I'm paying for you to be here. So I don't know why, like, my son's dead. You're not pregnant. Like, what What are you, what's your use? Mm. So then he's like, well, you should get back to Spain. But then her dad's like, I don't want you in Spain. So I'm going to make you the ambassador to England. So then she's like the correspondent between her dad and Henry and has to be in England. And eventually Henry VII dies of tuberculosis at Richmond Palace on the 21st of April, 1509. And he was buried in the chapel he commissioned in Westminster Abbey next to his wife. Henry, his youngest son, becomes Henry VIII of England and quickly marries his brother's widow, Catherine, in a low-key affair held in the Friars' Church in Greenwich on the 11th of June, 1509. On the 23rd of June, 1509, Henry leads Catherine, 23 years old and seven years his senior, from the Tower of London to Westminster Abbey for Wait, their what? coronation. 23 years old? Yeah, and seven years his senior. So he's 16? Yep. With a 23-year-old? Yep. And she wrote to her father that the early days of their reign were spent in continuous festival. And so begins the most famous love affair of all of history. And our next episode will pick up there. The most famous love affair in all of history. I think so. No. You don't think so? No. Who, then? Well, I don't think it could possibly be the most famous love affair in all of history. If, if you ask most people to name a wife of Henry VIII. You don't think it's Catherine of Aragon? You think it's Anne Boleyn? Yeah. Yeah, all right. That's fair. But I even but that doesn't make them the most famous. I no. wouldn't even say Anne Boleyn's the most famous love affair of history. I would put them pretty up there. Mm. Henry and Anne, maybe like Caesar and Cleopatra. Yeah, but Catherine of Aragon, no. Okay, fine. But that doesn't mean that they don't begin the most famous love affair of all, because if Catherine of Aragon had never been, then Anne Boleyn won't be. So. Yeah. What's your problem with Anne Boleyn? Huh? What's your problem with I Anne don't Boleyn? have a problem with it. I quite like Anne Boleyn, actually. Okay. I have an Anne tattoo, so I like her. We'll get to her. I don't know if each wife gets their own episode or not, but... Nah. <laughs> You're over it. You're like, I'm done with this. We just get into the good bit. That's all right. Yeah? This is, a good, this is what this is the whole purpose of this series, was to get to Henry VIII, right? Well, but there's monarchs after Henry VIII. We do more after Henry? Yes. Okay. That's an exciting face. It was not! Okay. You don't have to do this. No, no. I've got, I've got to ask my questions. Sure. Okay. All right. Well. Wait, no. I thought Henry didn't have any kids. Yeah, he did. Men. One. At the very end. Yeah. Well, not was... the very end, but. Which one gave him the kids? Jane Seymour. Well, I mean, so. What number was she? Three. But he got. She died. Yes. He got one from Catherine, one from Anne, and one from Jane. Well, boys or girls? Two girls, one boy. Girl, girl, boy. 
for all of you still listening. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Midnight Owl, and we will see you next time. For those of you not listening, good riddance. Good riddance! <laughs> Didn't want you anyway. We will see you next time. We'll hear you next time on the Midnight Owl for Messages episode on three. Instagram. Yeah, message us on Instagram. Midnight Owl Podcast. Yeah, drop the the. Drop the the, because I don't remember the password. Anyways, thanks for listening. Bye. Goodbye. Okay,